You're listening to the Kingdom Project Podcast. These are discussions on biblical theology and interpretation. The emphasis is on context and grace. The goal is to promote biblical literacy by displacing and debunking most modern interpretations. The challenge is to engage in healthy conversation that may stretch but sharpen iron. This is The Kingdom Project, and I'm your host, Marcus Hall. All right, everybody, how's it going? This is Marcus, as usual. Who else would it be? Welcome to another episode. Thanks for downloading, streaming, doing whatever it is that you do. Uh, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Uh, so, yeah, I know there was a um, a lack of episodes this last week. So, uh, no biggie, no worries, nothing else going on except for I was just being probably uh, just lazy, I guess, and just studying, studying a lot. So, um, anyway... Um, I have one episode recorded that's an hour long on the offices of Christ that will be out Tuesday and uh, Tuesday the 18th at 6 p.m. And this episode is the uh, Sunday sermon. This is continuing the um, sermon, you know, series, if you will, um, of the book of Ephesians. Uh, when, if you've been following along last week, we took a week off and answered a question and I did the teaching on, um, the different views and, uh, the different eschatological views to address the question about the millennium. And this week we are back at the book of Ephesians. We've been through the first three chapters. This here starts with chapter four and it only goes through, um, verses, um, one through six. You're going to hear me in the intro of the sermon say that I'm slowing down a bit on the um, on the, the preaching teaching here and trying not to cram so much. And you'll see why, because this um, this sermon is 35 minutes, uh, almost 35 minutes long on six verses. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's packed in pretty much all scripture, I would say, across the board. And I have rushed through um, a lot in this, uh, going through these those first three chapters. There are certainly a lot more that could be covered. I have, co- I have uh, cut out lots of notes. Um, so uh, I wanted to take... Uh, take a little time to go through especially this chapter and here's the reason why um i'm gonna say probably um here's what i'm already feeling and what i'm thinking already you'll hear me mention it a little bit in the sermon that um this is a different approach and a different way of reading this chapter from the background um that i've you know, been a part of for, you know, five years or so, which was, you know, the charismatic camp. Um, I continue to be a continuationist. You guys know that. And, you know, here's the thing. You guys know that saying that, um, you know, all Calvinists are reformed, but not all reformers are, are Calvinists. Um, I was thinking about that and I was like, you know, 
all charismatics are continuationists, but not all continuationists are charismatic. And I think that would be a good way to uh, to describe myself. So here, here's the thing. I think this series uh, here on chapter four of Ephesians is going to be somewhat special for for me in the sense that I've seen it now in its original context and what the content is actually saying. And if you're in um, the charismatic camp, Ephesians 4 is the famous chapter for fivefold ministry because it starts there and around 13 and um, about he gave the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, or teachers, uh, preachers, or and teachers. And until we all, you know, this whole unity of faith thing. And um, so it's fivefold. There it is. But um, I still, I still, uh, this is going to be a long intro probably, but that's okay. Um, uh, you you guys know I've done the episode on modern apostles. I you can't be in there's no apostles today, and um, because you can't meet the requirements for an apostle, it's been addressed and been written out in the first chapter of Acts, and I you know I've mentioned that the grace could be on somebody for an apostle like ministry. Um, that being said. I would, and I think I said it in that episode, the equivalent today would be a missionary. We actually do get the word missionary from the Latin word um, uh, apostle. And, you know, an, an apostle is a, a uh, someone that is sent, sent out, sent forth, and would do apostolic ministry. That would be that um, teaching the apostles' teachings. These are the things that Jesus has taught them and that we have within the New Testament. And so it would be establishing doctrine, biblical, solid biblical doctrine, and um, setting up a church, uh, spending the time there that would need to be maybe, you know, 19 months or two years, you know, something like that. And then going on forth to the next area and doing the same thing. Um, that's what an apostle would be doing. It would not be the way that the um, these modern apostles are doing work today, that they're working alongside the prophet to know what the next wave of God is or the next move of the Holy Spirit. So you need to listen to those two in order to get your church in alignment because they use now, and I've done it myself, I did it in the past, um, uh, a year or so ago and mis misused the Greek there um, about alignment and saying that it was a chiropractic term. Now, this word is in there, but that's not the definition that's being used. We'll, you'll hear more of that when I actually get to that part in Ephesians 4. Um, I'm not going to go all into it now, obviously, but uh, the emphasis then is not... Well, hold on. Let me finish my thought. These apostles are going around saying you got to have the, the the apostle and have the prophet. Those two work together. And if if you don't have those in the church or in your church, then you should be submitting the teacher or the the pa pa 
pastor should be submitting and be under an apostle and a prophet in order to hear from the Lord and what direction to go in. So these apostles today are actually over a bunch of churches. Some of them are over um, hundreds. Some are over um, thousands, and they're telling them exactly what they should be doing all the time. Therefore, they um, won't miss the next new move, the fresh new move of the Holy Spirit, and be in this alignment, and it's all for unity and the unity of the faith, and all these things, and um, uh, it, it's a big, it's a big thing, and it's all over. And there's an apostolic uh, alliance and apostolic networks, and you can pay money to be an apostle and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> that's not what Ephesians four is saying, not in the slightest bit. And it's just been a, 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 just a breath of fresh air to me to go through this verse by verse and look at this and actually really and I spent a long I spent a lot of time and you know looking at Greek and you looking at the uses of the words and looking at how Paul wrote this out and what his emphasis is on the first is unity and we'll hear that today in this sermon and I'll explain that and that unity has already been established that unity is um, doctrinal and it's from the apostles teachings and you'll hear that in the sermon as well. And here's the thing. When he says, when he gets to that part that is that is called or known as fivefold ministry, that is not the emphasis. He's saying that God gave the church the gift of ministry, that, that a man or a woman would be able to teach the saints. To teach that this is it's obvious within its context that the church has been gifted an overseer of the local church and that overseer is to teach proper sound doctrine orthodox doctrine from the apostles teachings it has no emphasis on the titles of apostle a prophet evangelist shepherd teacher it's about ministry being preached, being taught to the congregation and it's sound and it's biblical and, and, and it's orthodox. And that um, the word orthodox, since we get the word orthodontist, what do they do? They make your teeth straight. Orthodox um, is straight. Uh, teaching is what it is, you know, so it's straight teaching, it's biblical, it's the foundation in which has already been established by the apostles and Jesus as the chief cornerstone. And that's what this ver or well, this what a lot of Ephesians 4 is about. And it's not about this unity of faith that we all attain to now, that's actually pointing towards the future glory of of being in the presence of the Lord when we pass from this life to the next and when we are back on a redeemed earth living in eternity. 
that is when it will all be attained. The way it's written, the words that are being used, the emphasis and 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 how it I've been in this for two weeks. Um, and that's why I've slowed down and that's why I'm taking my time to to uh, to dissect it and speak of it the, and, and teach it the way that I'm I'm doing because th- I've known it as the other way before this whole time uh, that it's fivefold ministry and this is the way it should be and we got to do it because there's so many denominations and we don't have the unity of the faith and we have to strive for this and we have to do this and it's not what it's saying at all it's been imposed on the text it's eisegesis it's not exegesis and that's why i feel that this series part like this is a series within a series for me it's in a, a series on the book of ephesians but this the series is going to have a series of sermons on chapter four and it's significant for me because um i'm a continuationist but i'm a continuationist but i'm not very charismatic at all and nor will i be in favor or for um or support so-called five-fold ministry um because um (laughs) Because of everything that I just said, that's not the emphasis. And um, apostles don't exist today unless they're missionaries. So we got to send them somewhere else to establish straight orthodox teaching. Um, So anyway, uh, (laughs) that's my long winded big O intro there to this. All that uh, will be coming um, in the next two or three weeks going through this chapter um, because I know I won't get there next week, but it'll probably be uh, the week after that. And you guys will hear that more in depth and in detail. And so for those of you that are my friends that I know personally, and those of you that I don't know who are um, in the charismatic camp, who has been told that Ephesians 4 is, this is the uh, the chapter here where the emphasis is, is at, I, I ask you to just listen and and take it in and and test it and and then figure it out on um yourself uh for yourself um by dissecting the word as i have and i would challenge you then to look at it in the way that it's um i'm doing my best to present it in the way that paul actually wrote it to the church in ephesus um and um yeah so I'm telling you, you, you may see things differently after this. So, um, and if you want to disagree that, that'll be fine. Um, (laughs) just, um, I don't know, take a look at Acts one there, um, and see the qualifications, uh, the requirements for an apostle today and all that. And you'll see that that's just not uh, happening. And also you're going to see that you don't need the apostle or and the prophet to tell the pastor or the teacher what to do because what it's saying is that what we all should do that are that is in the position of an overseer or has an office of um, preaching and teaching is to teach straight foundational biblical doctrine that's laid out in the the new testament of the apostles teachings which jesus taught them and that's what they did to that's what they used that's what they taught that's what they preached to establish the church in the first century that continues to this day and the church is so much um uh, alive um even though people 
um, say that it's not, or that it's asleep, or that it's dead. It's not. It's the one thing that's remained consistent throughout history since its beginning is that we are a people of faith, and it's alive and well. It's two billion strong and growing, and um, it'll never go away, and it will never be dead. There will be some that will be apostate and false, but it's the true spiritual body in which Paul um, emphasizes here in this first part that you'll hear me teaching on that he's talking about and what he's referencing. It's the organic unity of the spirit that has kept us together in this bond of peace of the spirit. And that is what has has preserved it for this long through so many um, different crazy things that have happened in the last two millennia. Um, that is that is the core of what is saying here at the at, at um, the first half of this um, chapter, and it's it's encouraging, and you, you we should really look at it in a positive light like that because we know the gates of hell will not prevail against the body. Um, as Christ is the head and the Holy Spirit um, is the one who who has established the unity and it will go on for as long as it has to go on until it um, you know it consumes the whole batch or and it grows uh, like a mustard seed so <laughs> anyway I'm rambling now because uh, it's just what's on my mind it's what's on my heart and it's a positive message and I hope it encourages you I hope it edifies you and um, uh, yeah so just get your Bible out and take some notes or do whatever you want to do I hope this is as is, uh, is good I thought it was it was just it's been really really uh, um I don't know. It's just been really fun for me to go through uh, this this chapter uh, bit by bit and just piece by piece and actually um, explore it the way that I have been for, for two weeks now and uh, start to put it out there and uh, share it. So here it is, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. In chapter 4... I'm going to slow down, okay? Uh, I've been cramming a lot in these. And uh, when I do that, we miss some things sometimes. I'd rather just slow down and take our time. Um, because here in 4, there's a lot that is said. There is so much that is said here. And I know I've said that for every chapter because there's a lot. <laughs> but in order to really get this i i just didn't want to go through it really fast and because so we're just going to go through one through six today i would say next week we're probably only going to be seven through ten because i don't want to rush through that part either nor do i want to be rushed to rush through the 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 last part 11 um and on uh so there's a lot to cover. So we may be several weeks in this. So <laughs> if that's all right, I think it is. So, um, all right, chapter, when it starts, let's just go ahead and read it. Those first six there. All right, it's chapter four. All right. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. 
There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's a lot. (laughs) Okay, so let's recap then. Chapters 1 through 3 that we've been through. Paul has explained, he's even argued, that God's eternal purpose is to sum up all the things in Jesus, right? That this, this mystery of the gospel includes God bringing together two formerly hostile groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles, by making them into what? One new man in Jesus, right? We had that emphasis there. And then establishing then peace, which remember I said, it's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. This is a thing from God, this peace. That in Christ, both groups, all humanity really, have access now in one spirit to the Father, And we are being built into a holy temple, a dwelling place of God in the Spirit, right? Okay, so Paul has laid out this solid doctrinal foundation, all right? Most people will say one, two, and three is this foundation, this doctrine of all these things. Four, five, and six is application for the lives of those he's writing to and, of course, to us as well. But... This is doctrinal stuff. This is foundational doctrine is what is going on here, okay? That he's now going to build upon in these following chapters. And it's going to teach how the church brings glory to God and to Christ. And in doing so, he says that sound doctrine. He doesn't say it that way, but he's implying that sound doctrine undergirds or props up godly living, all right, so note, um, if you focus, though, just on doctrine, but you never live it out, then you just abort the whole process of what you're trying to do, and then you just become arrogant <laughs> or puffed up with knowledge. People like to use that out of context a lot. But you just become a know-it-all because you're not living it out. You're not applying it to your life. But just the opposite of this is when your focus is just on some practical application of good morals and good living without a solid doctrinal foundation, it will result in legalism or superficial Christianity and worse, heresy. All right? So, verse 1. Therefore, I therefore, right? What's it there for? We already know. We've gone through chapters 1 through 3. So what follows in these next part here, these next chapters, is linked to the foundation that came in those previous chapters. And he mentions that he is a prisoner, which we've addressed already. But again, he says that I am a prisoner for the Lord. He's not a prisoner to the Jews. He's not a prisoner to the Romans, but a prisoner of the Lord. Okay? He he knows that I'm not a prisoner of anybody except for Jesus. Like, he's a bondservant. He's a slave. This is, he takes, you know, joy in this. And so he says, urge you. I urge you to walk 
in a manner worthy of the calling, really, of the calling to which you have been called. So this calling, Paul appeals to walk, walk out. All right. You got to think about first century. They're walking. They're walking a lot. A lot of times in the Gospels, these these trips that they're taking with Jesus, I mean, these are 20-mile walks, three days sometimes to get where they're going. They're going back and forth constantly. <laughs> oh, what's going on there? <laughs> All right, so walk. You've got to walk out because of what? This calling, the calling, which is the Christian faith, brought by the Word of God, called by the Spirit that He says... Uh, it's by, called by the Spirit to Jesus to be reconciled to the Father as part of the gospel, right? This is why we have this ministry of reconciliation. In verse 2, he goes on to say, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Paul says this worthy walk involves humility, gentleness, this bearing with one another. We'll talk about it more in a little bit, but it's tolerance, Really? But it's not the tolerance that we talk about in our culture today. All right? It's bearing with somebody. I'll talk about it more. But by doing so, it's done. All these things are done in love. These words are relational words. These are qualities of Christ. That He works in us and through us for the sake of the church's unity. All right? So this word humility is interesting to me because... We say it a lot. Be, you know, be humble with humility. You know, this, what is it? What, you think of another word that, that we, we use that maybe uh, we, don't, that we don't like? Humiliation? <laughs> humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is being uh, Christ-sufficient instead of self-sufficient, Right? The humble recognizes God's grace and his gifts that have been given to us. The Greek that's used for this word humility is to have a humble opinion of oneself. It also means a deep sense of one's moral littleness, <laughs> a lowliness of mind. He, walk. Like with a lowliness of mind, it's humiliation of the mind. It's quite the opposite of what we hear a lot in evangelicalism today that you're so good, you're great, you're awesome. Like purpose, you purpose driven life stuff, you know, like you've got a dream, a destiny, do it, go for it, you know. We're always building people up. It's true in one sense that we have our identity in Jesus, we are holy and blameless, but it's because of Christ. Righteousness. God sees Christ when He looks at you because you're placed in Him. So it's interesting to find these things in Scripture like this that you don't hear a lot. Like to have this humiliation of the mind. Uh, Yeah, it goes against a lot of the seeker-driven stuff anyway. I won't rabbit trail on that. Verse (laughs) 3, he says eager to maintain the unity all right so paul then he says to maintain this unity of the spirits so there's there's 
an important distinction here that we should make that he makes regarding Christian unity. All right. The emphasis here is like if you have a heading here before the chapter unity in the body of Christ. And later on, when we get to it, it will say um, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith. I'm going to address that in a moment. But this maintaining it, he makes that regards this uh Unity of the spirit. It's not the unity people speak of today in regards to something that we need to strive for or try to attain or have take place within the the whole of Christendom um, as a goal uh, for revival and awakenings and all this thing, because he says we are to maintain the unity of the spirit. Another word is preserve this. All right, so it's not something we work to achieve because it already exists. It's there. He says preserve it, maintain it. It's there. There's a unity of the Spirit. I'm urging you to walk worthy in these things like this, bearing with one another, with a humiliated mind, in love, to be eager to maintain what has already been established that here is a unity of the spirit. All right. It's not a physical unity that needs to happen, like I said, in order for a revival to take place or an awakening to take place. That's what a lot of people say. Unity and honor above all, no matter the cost. So if people humble themselves and pray, the nation will come to repentance. Sorry, but that was for Israel, not America. Uh, this, that's not the type of unity that this is talking about. We are one because God's spirit has made the church one in Christ. True unity isn't created, nor is it destroyed by someone's actions. Paul is exhorting us to treasure this unity that's already been established by Jesus, by the spirits, and act accordingly to it. All right? It isn't an organizational or a denominational type of unity. It's an organic unity that the Holy Spirit provides in us when he baptizes us all into the one body of Christ, into the one new man. This is this is the new birth. It's the new you become new creation. When I say baptized, don't necessarily always mean a water baptism, but baptism as in you have repented, you become new creation. Okay, that's a baptism. So the unity of the spirit is this one true organic unity of the one body of Christ that consists of all believers everywhere who have been called to penitent faith Baptized, regenerated by God's Holy Spirit of all time. All right. And as I said later in verse 13, Paul will mention the unity of the faith. But these two unities are not the same. And we won't get into that, though. We'll see that when we get to there. Okay, it's different. But this unity, this unity of the spirit is important because Jesus died to secure it. Paul and countless others have suffered and died for it. And then we are called unto it and we are to maintain it. We are called to preserve it. It's important. So you go back then to verse one to that word worthy. 
And it has this ideal of weights being balanced on scales, right? So just take a moment to humor me about that. That one side is the gospel of God and his grace towards us in Jesus. And the other side is us, right? God's gospel, the grace right here, us down here. Which one? Which one outweighs God's grace, right? But here's the thing. It, it's us, but it's us in Christ. It's us as new creations living by the law of love, by this calling and our conduct and our behavior produces these things that preserves this unity of the spirits, which several of these qualities are actually listed as the fruit of the spirit in Galatians 5. And this shows that we can walk in the spirit in order to grow in these graces. So it's as if he's trying to say it's this balance here that is taking place, that it is possible to have this balance of God's gospel and grace and us walking in these qualities that the spirit produces in us to preserve this unity that has been established. We need these things. We need humility. We need gentleness, patience, the tolerance, or in some translations says forbearance, the bearing with one another. That means bearing with someone's shortcomings to give the person room to be different in non-moral issues or areas or second class or secondary issues when it comes to well, you know, the gospel or doctrine, if you will, in the Bible, like like last week in eschatology. All right. We can we can bear with if I think you have a shortcoming in your belief in the last days versus mine. That's OK. That's not salvation problem. All right. We have forbearance towards one another in these areas. And we do it in love because we need love. And so this is done in this bond of peace that he mentions in verse 3. This is a picture of tying Christians to one another and to God. And it was mentioned in chapter 2 that this peace that I've mentioned several times now, that's not a feeling, it's this quality that binds us all together. This bonding in Greek is used to refer to ligaments in the body. What do those do? Holds us together, right? Holds the bones together. This is this bonding of this peace that is, ties us all together in, to Christ, to God. So we are called to walk in this manner that's worthy of our calling as saints. And the Holy Spirit produces these qualities that we are to practice and walk in. And this preserves this unity that's already been established. It's quite remarkable, actually, to say that, to think that, and to hear it when you break it down like that. It just sort of is like, oh, okay, it's there. It's not something I need to sow into as in, like, get some more money to have a breakthrough in your life or, uh, you know, join another group or a small group or take this curriculum or this new book and you'll find it. You'll have it right here. The download of the Lord will come to you. No, it's there. Unity is there. It's been established already. We don't see that today, I don't think. I mean, as far as 
across the board and whatever's popular. Um, and I, I know I take hits at that a lot when I speak. It's because it bugs me. <laughs> I'm sorry. All right. People aren't hearing the full gospel. They're hearing about how great they are and what they can do because you need your riches and your like everything now, 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 prosperity, health, wealth, all these things. When it's just peace, it's righteousness, peace, and joy in Christ. That's the Holy Spirit. That's the kingdom of God. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's always about Jesus. Why is it about me? Like he saved me. It's not about me. It's about God getting the glory for this stuff. Okay, sorry. So that brings us to four through six, all right? And it says, it's, it is said that these verses is a quotation of an early hymn or even a creed that was already established at this time in the church. Um, the, the, the church's unity is the Trinity, okay? It's one spirit, verse four. It's one Lord. Uh, well, actually, yeah, hold on. One, there's one body, the one body, but he says one spirit, one Lord, one father. All right. This this word one is actually used here seven times. It says there is one body, one spirit. And he mentions one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. Number seven. It just happens to be God's number for completeness in the Bible. So let's talk about one body. This oneness of the church is rooted in Christ himself and the one spirit unites us all, all right? This is one of Paul's favorite analogies to use that the church is the body of Christ and which he is the head of. And Paul uses analogies to bring out aspects of the church a lot. He's called it God's kingdom, of which we are fellow citizens, God's household, which we are family members, uh, God's tem- temple, which we are his dwelling place in the spirit. Later in chapter five, he will state that the church is the bride of Christ. And his emphasis is that unity is built on the fact that we are one body. Paul isn't referring just to this visible church that we see. All right. Right now, Uh, he's referring also to the unseen spiritual body of Jesus, that it that it's composed of all genuine believers, as I said earlier, um, uh, in, in every time, in every place since the day of Pentecost, when the Spirit was poured out and the church began and took place then, right? He's, this is what he means when he says one body, all right? Of all history, of all time, the universal church, the spiritual body of Jesus, which we compose and that's how he sees it, all right? It's, it's, it's also implied that the true Christian unity, this unity of the Spirit, is based on this new life in Jesus. Again, not organizational basis, but foundational truths that he has already wrote out for us in the first three chapters. It's the solid biblical doctrine foundation that's been built by the apostles and Jesus as the chief what? There you go. Cornerstone. It's all going back to that. 
The apostles' teachings show us this. It, it is biblical unity. And biblical unity is doctrinal unity. And this is found in the one body. I'm a big doctrine guy. People say, oh, I don't get into all the doctrine. Doctrine divides. Of course it does. That's the purpose of it. <laughs> I'm not talking about the secondary issues like I mentioned earlier. I'm talking about true biblical doctrine that is based on the full counsel of the word of God that we have laid out for us here in the Bible. It divides because people don't want to hear all of it. They just want to cherry pick. Watching a video last night of an atheist where... Uh, being interviewed by a Christian, but she was like, I realized I was just cherry picking things as I was a Christian. So when I decided to read it all, I couldn't compromise myself with this. And that's the problem, right? That's why doctrine does cause division. Sometimes people don't want to give up the way they want to think, the way they want to believe when it comes in regards to what is said here. It's an inspired word of God. So they, no, we'll create a God then that fits into our, our model of what God should be. We'll create a Jesus that fits into the model of the Jesus that we want to serve. Then we're not saved because we've just created a false doctrine of a false Jesus from a false God. So we're, we're saved to a false gospel. Right? We're saved to a false doctrine. That's why doctrine matters. Theology is important. All right? So that's why this is all pointing to doctrine. And I'll have to say that's why another reason why I want to go slow on this, because this is the first time for me in a deep study in chapter 4, where I know you guys probably don't have this experience, but Olivia and I do, where the emphasis is later on here about the apostles, the prophets, um, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And this is fivefold ministry, and God is bringing it back, and He's restoring it, and the church must operate in this way. And this, the emphasis is not on that at all. And I'm finding this so much here, and it's just so, it's good, it's refreshing. I, I, I made up my mind a long time ago, there's no modern apostles today, because you can't meet the, the requirements in, in Acts 1, that it states, but... They're always like, we got to do this, we got to do this. Why? Then they do it because we got to have this to have a, this unity. Well, he says this unity has already been established. Anyway, <laughs> rabbit trails. I get it. It's been a good study, though, and it's like, man, this isn't about fivefold ministry at all. It's not. Okay. So, one spirit. He goes into, obviously, we know he's referring to the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit regenerates. He baptizes us and it makes us born from above. He makes us new creations. Jesus said that that which is born of the spirit is spirit and you must be born again. He said this in John three. And Paul says here in this little this uh, one little part, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. That's a good statement. The context is clear. He's referring to receiving salvation to me. I, that's what I believe. And at that moment, we all receive the one spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. So there's this general call of the gospel that goes out to all. Some respond. Others refuse and reject it. Or they come to that position in which I 
talked about a minute ago that they don't want to compromise themselves with it. So they say no. But those who respond allows God to open their hearts to respond with a saving faith. And then the one Lord. It's, this is going from the Spirit to Jesus. Usually in scriptures we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Here is Spirit to Jesus, to the Father. One Lord, okay? Lord is consistently used in the Old Testament to refer to Yahweh, the one true God. And in the New Testament, it refers to Jesus. This one Lord is Jesus himself, who is our peace, which Paul stated back in chapter 2. So all true doctrinal Biblical unity centers on and around the work of Christ and what he's done, which is our eternal Lord. This is the confession then of Jesus as Yahweh, God, one true God here. This emphasis is clear. And that takes us to the one faith. This one faith isn't the act of believing. But what is believed Right? You have to come to a point of not just, yeah, that's what I believe. It's what you do believe. It's not the act of just believing. It is what is believed. It refers to the core truths that are essential for the gospel to the Christian faith. And again, this is doctrine. And one baptism. Paul, Paul is saying there's only one baptism here. This is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Or other way around, right? <laughs> We always say it a lot, though, in our own world. One Lord, one baptism, one faith. He's saying there's one baptism which Christ himself and all Christians are baptized and thereby joined. Okay, And this is being born again, born from above. It's the new birth. Now, let me take a drink. You guys doing okay? You tell why I didn't want to rush through it. <laughs> Some want to argue whether the water or spirit can be separated. That's obviously debated. The emphasis, however, is it's one and they're not separate because Paul is focusing on the basic meaning of baptism, which is identification with Jesus. It's baptism. It's not just water. But it's the spirit baptism too. And I'm not talking about Pentecostal distinction. I'm saying you receive the Holy Spirit when you repent and you at your salvation, your conversion, the regeneration, right? So is there one or is there two? It seems to me that the Bible says there's one. <laughs> That's debated. But the Pentecostal distinction would say that, no, you get your water baptized, but now you need a baptism of the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in tongues. And if that doesn't happen to you, then you're not saved. But Corinthians is clear. We'll all speak in tongues. No. So does that mean you're not saved if you don't speak in tongues? No. It's a lie. It's a doctrine of man. All right. Probably a doctrine of demon. Demons as well. But when you're not in that circle or that camp, you also have another work that people emphasize, which is sanctification. Uh, and that's, they, they'll say that's a second work of grace on your life. But it's an ongoing work in which we have to walk in and walk out with the spirit that grows and grows and grows. 
And even though supernaturally we are saved and sanctified and holy and all these things, you're never going to be completely sanctified and have this Christian perfection, is what they say, until you're in the presence of the Lord after you pass from this life to the next. And that's why I would say there's one baptism. Water and spirit. You know, obviously the water baptism does not save you it's your repentance it's this call and it's it's this you know symbolism of taking this public uh hey i'm saved and you go down you know and we and there's division on that too but we go down we're dead we rise back up we're raised with the lord so the focus the basic meaning of baptism is identification in jesus and so It's foundation here. Again, all back to the foundational things that he has established. The doctrine, these apostles' teachings that is from Jesus, right? This is why it's so doctrinal to me. Jesus said, you're going to go and teach the things in which I've teached you. I'm paraphrasing. I don't know. I don't have it memorized. You guys go. The disciples go and teach what I have taught you. Don't worry about if you're going to remember or not. The Holy Spirit will give you the words in which to speak. And then they did. And at Pentecost, they did. 3,000 are saved, right? Repent, be baptized, all of you. And then what did they do? They dedicated themselves to the apostles' teachings. And it continued and it grew. And this is what we're going through now. This is one of the apostles' teachings And the apostles today are still making disciples of all nations because we have it here preserved in the word. It's foundational. This is dedicating yourself to the apostles teachings is being dedicated to the word of Christ. And being dedicated to the whole word is still being dedicated to the word of Christ because it's all Christ because Christ is God. And it's all laid out there and it all centers around the person of Jesus in which Paul is saying saying here. And that's the most important thing. It's not, hey, they're, they're, therefore you guys go as you're going to make disciples of all nations. He told the, the disciples, all power and authority has been given to me. Therefore, you guys go make disciples of all nations. And it's still being done today by the proclaiming of the word from the pulpit or from evangelism, from missionaries and so forth. That's good stuff. <laughs> So that brings us to one God and Father of all, that God claims fatherhood, which I've mentioned this, we're just borrowing that word, Father. God claims fatherhood over all because he created all. But, it's, but only through Jesus can we ourselves acknowledge him as Father. God is Father of all believers. He is over us. He is through all believers working through us and he is in all by personally being in us because we are his dwelling place in the spirits. Paul used the Paul's use of that word all is fourfold and it emphasizes common unity that we all share. He's the father of all over all through all in all. This is my last points, okay? Father of all, we are all brothers and sisters. He's a father over all. We all submit to him. His word is our authority. I'm, I'm an overseer. I, I'm not 
your authority. You don't have to submit to me in that way. You know what I mean? That submission. He is our authority. This word is authoritative. We together go to this to submit to it. He's God. He's the Father through all that we trust. He is, made, he is working through our brothers and sisters as well as ourselves in these qualities that we have talked about. The humility, gentleness, patience, the tolerance and bearing with one another and eager to maintain that unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace with love. And God is in all. We see him in our brothers and sisters. And when we serve them, we are serving God. And when we love them, we are loving God. And that's important. Sending cards, taking a church, uh, a little a present, serving the church and cleaning and things like that. This is good works. This is this is serving God when we do these things. That's the emphasis here. He is the father of all. And by all these things, these alls that Paul mentions and what I have said about them, this is what unites us. All right, there you go. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Any comments, uh, disagreements, grievances, complaints, uh, send them my way at the Kingdom Project Podcast at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook, like the page, and join the discussion group. Until next time, be a mustard seed, be 11. Thank you for listening.